0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Aaron and I'm here with Jeff and we are joined by a very special guest today. We're going to talk about the environmental impacts of mountain biking and joining us is Ross Martin. He's a mountain biker who also happens to be a PhD candidate in the geography department at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. He also teaches and lectures there and I know Ross from back in the day when we used to race some mountain bikes here in Atlanta and he's also Pretty handy bike mechanic. So thanks for joining us, Ross. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. So first off, you know, when we're talking about environmental impacts, it's not just a single thing, right? So what are the different types of environmental impacts mountain bikers should consider?
1: Uh, Generally, it can be broken down into basically physical impacts, ecological impacts, and social impacts. The focus of my research is really on erosion and physical impacts to the soils but everything is connected. So physical impacts can create ecological impacts and social problems and vice versa.
0: Gotcha. Probably one of the the most visible impacts to mountain bikers is the vegetation, right? Because after all, some vegetation is going to be disturbed in the construction and riding of a trail. So speaking specifically to vegetation, what are some possible impacts there?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the most visible. Trail widening is a common problem. You know, riding around muddy spots or passing other people on a trail uh, can make them wider and more prone to erosion. Rogue trails and shortcuts are also a common problem. Few people trampling the vegetation might not seem like a big idea, uh, a big deal, but it's a visual thing. You know, if you if you see some tracks through the grass and vegetation, other people might think it's a trail and might want to go that way. Different types of vegetation respond differently, so people should consider local local variation in vegetation to really understand the impact in their areas. Typical impacts include a reduction of vegetation cover, reduction in the number of species and the height. Less tolerant species tend to die off first, so you lose species richness. And a reduction in vegetation cover means there's less photosynthetic area, so that can impact flowering. And so even if it doesn't kill the plants outright, it can reduce their ability to reproduce. Um, so, vegetation loss associated with trail widening and, and road trails and shortcuts uh, exposes a, a lot of soil which leads to erosion and those roots really help to stabilize the soils. And forest fragmentation which is created when there are areas of missing vegetation creates edge effects which can also alter animal populations.
2: So you mentioned uh, earlier that trail widening is a problem. People riding around puddles. So this is something I've always wondered: if there is a puddle in the trail, should you just ride right through it, or should you go around it? Which one's better for the trail? Uh, that's really hard to say. Probably just just bunny hop right over it. Um. <laughs> ah, third answer. That's, that's good. A- <laughs> that's always my preferred
1: method. Yeah, if you you know riding around it can kill some of the vegetation, but riding through it can create ruts. And if you ride through it really fast, it's a splashing of it can, you know, displace sediments way off to the side. So I don't know if there's actually a best thing other than just kind of avoid those
2: areas. Yes. Stay off wet trails.
1: Yeah. Reroute the trail. Sometimes it's easy just to reroute the trail around a little dip to drain it.
0: So you mentioned uh, species richness. So is that the same thing as biodiversity? And why is, if so, why is that important?
1: More or less is the same. Species richness just refers to the total number of species, while biodiversity looks more at kind of the total number, the abundance, and the distribution of different species. So both are an indicator of overall ecosystem health. Low biodiversity can result in malnourished animals and diseases in animals, and also the spread of invasive species. One thing to consider is The difference between resistance and resilience of vegetation. So the resistance to impact or trampling pressure is how they initially react to it. And resilience is how quickly they can recover. So there are nearly linear rates of vegetation loss with trampling pressure, but the more resistant species have highly curvilinear response rates. So they stand up really well to initial pressure, but when they're gone, they're gone. So things like like grasses, you know, they make good lawn cover because they're resistant and resilient. Uh, Forbs and kind of herbaceous plants, they're less resistant, but they're really resilient. So a lot of weeds would fall into this category. They're easy to break, but they grow back really quickly. And then woody vegetation and shrubs, It's really resistant to trampling because it's harder to break those woody stems, but they're not really resilient. So once it's broken,
0: it's really hard to grow back. Gotcha. Some of the best riding in the world takes place in what would be considered, I guess, extreme environments. You know, we're talking about the desert and the alpine, places like Moab and Monarch Crest Trail in Colorado. Those are on just about every mountain biker's bucket list. So I imagine there have to be even greater environmental considerations in these areas. So what are some things to consider there?
1: Yeah. So high alpine generally gets less energy from the sun because of shorter days. They have a much shorter growing season. So the impacts to the vegetation are magnified. So if those stems and leaves are trampled on, the plants have less photosynthetic area. So it's harder for them to recover. Sometimes Us geographers call mountains islands in the sky. So these vegetation communities are isolated from similar vegetation communities on nearby mountains. So that makes it even harder to recover because there's not the seeds and uh, stuff there. Deserts are interesting. They have these biotic crusts that are really hard to see, but they're really an essential element of desert ecosystems. So those crusts help hold the soil together. They retain moisture. Uh, what little moisture there is and they provide nutrients for other small organisms so you need to be especially careful to stay on the trail uh, in those more sensitive environments
0: does that also apply to i know slick rock type you know the riding they have out in moab a lot of it's just bare rock but there's also plants and lichens and mosses on on rocks often aren't there
1: Yeah, so it would definitely apply there, too. It's just a more extreme environment, harder for stuff to grow, and harder for stuff to recover after it's impacted.
0: So stay on the trail, everybody. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So, yeah, so far we've been talking generally about environmental impacts, but how do mountain bikes specifically affect the environment?
1: Yeah, so impacts to vegetation on the, on the trail are, are really similar. You know, the trampling, the breakage, it's similar, but the difference is in the pattern and the intensity. Most of the research out there, my own included, show that mountain bike impacts are really similar in scale to hiking impacts, while like horses and motorcycles are obviously going to be much greater. You know, there, there's an obvious difference between a boot or a shoe and a tire. So that's really something I'm trying to focus on. So with mountain bikes, there's increased impact on slopes, and that's due to excess torque, you know, when you're really grinding up a hill, the tire slipping a little bit, and then when you're braking, coming down a hill, you know, it's really different than kind of the halting motion of when you're stepping up or down a hill. Uh, Mountain bikes have higher impacts at low trampling rates, because if you think about the difference between a tire and a boot, a tire has a continuous contact patch on the ground, uh, but there's spatial gaps in between the footsteps. So the initial impact of a mountain bike is higher, but once you get up to, you know, maybe 100 or 200 uh, passes by the, by a user, uh, it really equalizes. Once you get enough, of enough people walking past that area to fill in those gaps of the footprints, uh, right. the impact becomes really pretty equal. I think that has impacts for yielding on trails. You know, the typical rule is that the bikers yield to hikers, which is, I think, mainly due to safety. But should a big group ride, you know, get off the trail and yield to a couple of walkers in a sensitive environment? I think it's important kind of questions to ask.
0: that is interesting. Yeah, so it
1: really comes down to contact area, weight. So the contact area is just the surface area that's in contact with the ground and the weight of the hiker or the biker or whatever. So if you think of a cyclocross bike as a really small and narrow uh, contact patch, And, you know, whatever the rider and bike weight is, compare that to like a fat bike that has a really large contact patch on the ground. So the pressure of a fat bike is going to be much less, which that's what makes them floaty to ride on snow and sand. So maybe they'd be better in more sensitive environments. I don't know. But in my like kind of rudimentary measurements, a a 29 by two inch tire is about the same size as a, There's about the same contact pressure as a, as one foot. So it's, you know, pretty equal contact pressure there. And so with vegetation, it doesn't really matter how much weight it is. If it's enough weight, if it's over the threshold to break the vegetation, it's going to break it. And that's different than the soil impacts where just more weight is more compaction.
2: Yeah. You know, mountain bikers are definitely attuned to the dirt on trails. You know, we talk a lot about loam and hero dirt and moon dust and all the various sort of soil conditions that are present on trails. So what are mountain bike impacts on the soil itself and how does that play into the environmental impacts?
1: Yeah, this is kind of my area of focus. I really love all the words that mountain bikers have for different soil conditions. Uh, One day I'm going to do a big project to like quantify hero dirt, but we'll see.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you always hear that the Eskimos, right. Have like a million words for snow. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Mountain bikers, we have that many words for dirt. So yeah.
1: Yeah. It's kind of cool. So yeah, most of the soil impacts come during trail construction phase. It's really Soil compaction is what makes a trail a trail. It's what makes a trail stick around, you know, from year to year. But the soil impacts we don't want are those when people go off trail and create shortcuts and stuff like that. So soil compaction is really heavily researched. Uh, There's a good deal of research about soil compaction and trails. So different soil types respond differently. You know, clays are really small particles and silts are the next largest size and then sand... And so loams are like kind of equal proportions of each of those. Uh, silts and clays are really prone to compaction, especially when they're wet, but they don't allow water to infiltrate. And um, some of them are also cohesive. So it takes a long time for compacted clays to recover from compaction. And sands, they don't really compact as much. So they also allow water to, to infiltrate, but they're, they're not as much fine they're not as much fun to ride. That's why loams are good, you know, kind of soils with mixed components are much better because they compact a little bit. So, you know, the trail surface is nice and compact to ride, but they also allow a little bit of infiltration. So soil compaction, it does a lot of things um, off trail. It can hinder root development, so that can change what type of vegetation is able to grow there. It changes the way water reacts with the trail, so the water availability to the roots and also the way the water drains, and it can even change the soil chemistry. One of the big uh, effects of soil compaction is that it reduces infiltration, and when the water can't soak into the ground, it leads to overland flow and, and channeling of water, which can cause kind of secondary erosion. So this is a major focus, or it should be, for trail building and maintenance. The action of bikes, just the tires can erode trails, but the force of water has a much greater potential to erode the trails. So when the soil is compacted, it kind of creates a low spot, and then the water is always going to find the lowest spot to, to flow. And so if trails, if they're not built properly to divert the water off the trail, they can create these conduits for flow and just lead to a, a lot of erosion. So clay, because it is can be cohesive it's less prone to widening, and it's a smooth surface, but it's worse for, for infiltration. So you're going to get a lot more overland flow in clay soils than uh, you know, sandy soils from the water can infiltrate more.
0: Uh, that's why you always see big puddles like at uh, Bull and Jake Mountain and Dahlonega. It's a lot of clay up there. So you the parts that are, are sloped are baked solid, but then at the bottom... Oh, when all that's compacted in, you have a great place for water to pool. And since there's no way for that water to infiltrate the ground, yeah. you get big old puddles.
1: Exactly. So yeah, the soil is really de- determined by a um, combination of geology and vegetation. So up in those mountains, you probably have some schists, I think, and maybe some granites that erode to, to form some clays. So those types of soils they're going to be they're going to compact easy, and that's different than other type of soils that may have more uh, like quartz in them that would erode to to sandstones um, where they won't compact as much and might drain a little better. So there aren't a whole lot of that, of uh, studies about how fast it takes soils to recover. But the ones that are out there show that it takes, you know, maybe six or 10 years for soil to recover. So like temporary closures of trails, which are a common thing to do, aren't that effective unless you can really close them for a long period of time. The vegetation might grow back, but usually it's an altered vegetation. It's not the native vegetation.
0: Man, that's uh, yeah. So I guess just closing it for a couple of days after the rain isn't, uh, isn't going to do much for long-term. So you mentioned some of the different kinds of soil. Is there anything, such thing as a, an ideal soil for trail building, in your opinion? I don't know. Uh, like I said, I think mixed particle sizes are the best,
1: like loams and sandy or gravelly silts or clays, because it's kind of the best of both worlds. It compacts up enough to to stay a nice narrow trail, but it also allows some drainage. And it, it's really more about the alignment or the design of the trail for specific soil type. So you might want to avoid uh, certain slopes or a certain trail alignment in a clay soil, like the ones you mentioned before. You really, if it's clay, you really want to stay on sloped areas and avoid the low lying areas. While wow. If it was this more sandy soil or a rocky soil, it's not going to be a, as big of a deal to have a trail through the low, low lying areas. So it's, it's more about how the, the trail is aligned on specific soil types.
2: So based on what we're talking about, it seems like erosion is one of the major things that can impact a trail. And we see this a lot around here and I'm sure a lot of areas as well, especially where we have sandy soils. So a good example here is a trail system called Chicopee Woods. And at those trails, it's like every time you go out there, the roots seem to get taller and taller because, you know, the sand is just, or the soil rather, is getting eroded away. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about erosion and how the process works and maybe um, how you can slow that down?
1: Yeah, for that example, it's, you know, the difference between clay and sand. One of the big differences is that the cohesiveness. So sandy soils aren't cohesive, so it's really easy to spread them apart and move them around while clays will really stick together. But really, you know, like I said at the beginning that everything is connected, the reduction in vegetation or the trail widening means that you lose all the roots that really hold the soils together. And then if you have overland flow, there's a lot of potential for erosion from the water. You know, if you've ever had to hose your bike off after a muddy or dirty ride, you know, that's all erosion that you're taking with you. So it's a fun experiment, you know, go to weigh your bike right before a ride, weigh your clean bike, and then after a dirty ride, just to see how much dirt you're moving from the trail, you you know, you might be surprised.
2: Yeah. And it adds up over hundreds, if not thousands of riders, especially somewhere like Chicopee where on any weekend, yeah, you probably get a couple hundred riders easily. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, a few grams or something of soil really adds up quickly. I guess the bigger impacts of soil erosion are truncating the soil profile. So soils are really kind of well-developed with different profiles in the soil that have kind of different chemical compositions. And it takes a really long time for them to, to form that way. And if you truncate, truncate the soil profile, you're taking off the top organic layer that is used for vegetation growth. So if you remove that, then it hinders vegetation growth in the future, which you know, in vegetation, the roots hold the soil down. So it's kind of this feedback cycle. Soil erosion is really dependent on uh, slopes. So just being on a slope, there's a lot more potential energy for the soils and rocks and stuff to move, especially if you're grabbing on the brakes or really trying to crank up the hill. There's just a lot more energy associated on slopes. It's really dependent on user frequency as well. So, The more riders, the more erosion there's going to be. That's, you know, that seems to be a constant in most of the research I've looked at, especially my own. And again, it's different with different soil types and different geology. So, in really rocky areas, you're much less likely to get deep erosion. So you're not going to get a really entrenched trail because the rocks prevent that. But the rocks can kind of move sideways, and so the erosion is going to be wider than deeper in rocky areas, where like clay, when you have a lot of compaction and overland flow, the water is just going to dig deeper and deeper. So that's where you're going to get those really deep V-shaped trails. Also, something that a lot of people don't talk about is erosion when it's dry. So due to the surface tension of water, the water holds the particles together, especially smaller particles. And so really dry soils can be really prone to erosion just as much as wet soils. So any dust when you're riding equals erosion, especially like silty soils. The silts, those particles are really, they're so small, it doesn't take much effort to just blow them up, you know, when you're riding by. So I think that's something that not a lot of people think about.
2: Yeah, we've been seeing a lot of that. It seems this summer, particularly out west, a lot of the trails, the videos we've been seeing are just they're just really, really dusty. That moon dust is, I guess it's another type of soil that people talk about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I was out in Whistler last month and they had a really dry summer, lots of forest fires, but yeah, the the soil is just bone dry there. And I was talking to a trail builder and he said that is a, a major problem there because the soil, it dries out and then, you know, people are riding it. So that's causing it to erode, but just it being so dry and then when you have wind come through, that blows the soil away. So even without people riding a trail, uh, it can still get eroded if it's too
2: dry. So, yeah, what kind of research have you done or uh, studies have you seen about how mountain bikes specifically impact erosion?
1: Um, again, it's really similar to just kind of general hiking impacts. It's just a difference in pattern. So I think I mentioned before, excess torque when you're trying to crank up a hill or skidding, that all can move rocks. You know, if you're bombing down a hill and you're hearing rocks falling behind you, that's erosion. The soil compaction, again, that leads to erosion. One thing that I'm trying to look at is a lot of the research out there kind of looks at a bike as a static unit. And they're like, you know, here's a bike and a bike tire and here's a a hiker with a boot. But I'm trying to look at how bikers flow through the trail. So sometimes you, you know, a biker's going to kind of float over something, so that there's might be less erosion there. But then if you hit a hard turn, um, there are more forces there, so that maybe you have more erosion going through turns and things like that.
2: What about other bikes that are coming onto the scene? So you know, you talked about fat bikes, but we're also hearing about e-bikes and how there's studies being done about whether they contribute more or less to erosion. Uh, What have you seen with that in terms of the different types of bikes?
1: There's not a whole lot about it, but it really, it comes down to weight and torque. The erosion really comes down to weight and torque. And, you know, with an e-bike, anybody out there can have, you know, 300 or 400 watts to put down. And so going up a hill, that's just giving a lot more people a lot more excess torque. So they also weigh more with the batteries and everything. And so... Just more weight and more torque is going to be lead to more erosion.
2: Yeah, that's, I was going to say, one of the big marketing things. If you look at e-bikes, you know, the, the key stats that they give you are like torque and, you know, power. And so, yeah, torque is definitely something that they excel at, uh, which isn't necessarily good for trails and the weight, as you mentioned.
1: Yeah, just like motorcycles, you know, they can really just lay on the throttle going up a hill um, and that's an impact that mountain bikers really don't have because as a mountain biker, you you really want to be kind of balanced the power going uphill. You don't want to waste power by spinning out your wheels. But with an e-bike, maybe that's not something you're so concerned with. You know, and, and speaking of different types of bikes, fat bikes have a larger area, so less compaction like we talked about before. But it's a wider area, so if you skid a fat bike tire, that's going to move around a little Move around more sediments than a, a, a different type of bike. Uh, and cyclocross bikes are narrow, and um, they can really kind of dig in to create ruts and create this kind of lateral erosion, where you're pushing sediments to the side.
2: Yeah. Speaking of fat bikes, is there have there been studies done on the impact of fat bikes on snow? Um, because it seems like you know, especially if you have, say, you got a foot of snow that's been sort of compacted down. Seems like any erosion or impacts like that are going to be temporary, right? Or is that oversimplifying and maybe there's something more going on? Yeah. Well, I yeah, I've heard some argue that um for example, I think in Yellowstone National Park they were studying whether mountain bikes could could ride in the winter there because, you know, National park bikes aren't allowed uh, during most of the year, but there are like snowmobile trails and things like that, where the argument goes that you're just riding on top of the snow, which is on top of the soil. And so there's no impact, which makes sense to me. But yeah, I just I just didn't know if there's any support for that.
1: I don't know. I, I think that there would be some impact. I don't know of any specific studies, but it seems like if you're compacting the snow really tightly, then it's going to kind of... Put some force on the, on the soil below it. So I, I don't know. That would be something really interesting to look at.
2: Yeah. What about uh, what about other user groups too? We've talked about that a little before, but uh, what about hikers and and horse riders?
1: Yeah, that's it's definitely different. Like I mentioned before, that you know the difference between tires and boots or horse hoofs. There's obvious difference there. There was a really interesting study that simulated rain conditions over these experimental plots. And then they had a hiker go back and forth and horse go back and forth and mountain bikes and motorcycles. And it showed that the plots with hikers and horses, because the like the stepping action, they produced a lot more soil for runoff. And so a lot more erosion associated in the rain with hikers and horses than the wheel, even either one of the wheeled uh, objects, the mountain bike or, motorcycle so yeah hiking uh horse impacts are much greater again that comes down to the weight and the contact patch a horse hoof is really hard and there's a lot of weight there and that's quite different than a bike tire that's kind of low pressure kind of soft with a lot less weight than a horse
2: so when talking about erosion, I think a lot of us just think about, you know, the dirt itself being displaced and, you know, maybe you have some ruts or you need to go back in and fill dirt in where it's moved out of the way, but there can be other impacts from erosion as well, right?
1: Yeah, kind of these secondary impacts. Uh one of the big ones is water quality. So, erosion, the the dirt goes somewhere. So, it always flows down and and contribute to uh, sedimentation in streams and in rivers siltation in streams can threaten the whole ecosystem of a stream you know an example is if the little rocks little gaps in the rocks where mayflies and other aquatic insects live if, if those fill up with silt then those animals have nowhere to live so that can reduce you know the food for trout and other fish species and it can change the whole ecosystem again like you mentioned before i think it Chicopee it can really change the nature of a trail too and so that can lead to these you know perceptions of mountain bikers as a user group if if the erosion changes what the trail was and exposes the roots and stuff
0: so we talked a little bit about the different types of bikes so you know fat bikes versus a regular width tire versus a cyclocross tire but would different types of tread have a different impact on erosion? Like if you had a fast-rolling cross-country tire versus a really knobby all-mountain tire, are those going to have a different uh, impact on the trail?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they would. That's not something people have looked at. I think most of the research out there is, you know, it's not really done by... Mountain bikers. It's not really done by a mountain biker perspective, even though a lot of the people that do the research may have gone mountain biking or are familiar with the sport. So that's something I'm definitely interested in looking at in the future.
2: Is how much of this research, uh, in your opinion or your experience, uh, is any of it like politicized? Like, are there hiker groups who are funding their own studies and, you know, mountain bikers or EMBA funding theirs? Like, Is the perception that the studies that have been done are fair, or is there seen to be like some bias in some of this?
1: I think it's pretty fair. Um, Most of the studies I'm talking about are kind of peer-reviewed, and so they're in these peer-reviewed journals, so there's not a lot of bias there. It's something I'm trying to be really careful with, because obviously I'm a mountain biker, and so that people think that I have that bias immediately, but I just really want to have good trails, you know, I don't want to ride eroded trails. So I, I think it's pretty fair. I don't think there's a lot of bias there. I will say in response to that, I think the, the bias doesn't come from politics. It just comes from not being so familiar with the sport. Like a lot of the research that compares mountain bikers to hikers is done on these experimental plots where the people just like literally go back and forth across a patch of vegetation. And that might represent what a hiker's doing, but that doesn't all at all represent how a mountain biker goes over the landscape. Because you're not—it's not just riding back and forth. You know, you go through turns, and there's different pressures and
0: different areas.
1: So that's kind of what I'm trying to bring to the research.
0: We talked about uh, impacts to the soil and to the vegetation, but what about impacts to wildlife?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not a biologist. Um, I've learned a pretty good deal about it and basically wildlife is going to respond to encounters with trail users with fight or flight so it's different in different species you kind of have to think about it in terms of the animal so a walker a hiker with a dog which is perceived as a predator by a lot of uh, a lot of species can scare a lot of animals than a walker by themselves. so a larger group of people is going to scare more animals than a single people. So there's one, there's one study that looked at mule deer and bison and pronghorn, and they found that they didn't flush as far from bikers when compared to hikers. So that's probably because the bikers are spending less time kind of in the animal space. You know, they're just kind of going by and they're gone while hikers uh, take a long time to longer time to move through the landscape. So there, there's not a whole lot of research about bikes. And most of the research, at least what I've seen, uh, seems to be focused on uh, bigger animals, especially game animals. Uh, another impact we can have to uh, wildlife is forest fragmentation. So when you uh, create a trail, especially if the sunlight can penetrate the canopy on the trail, you create these edge effects. So anyone that's been in a forest knows the edge of a forest is different than the middle of a forest. And so when you have a lot of trails uh, and a lot of uh, exposed areas in the middle of forest, you create edge effects, which kind of change the ecosystem. It creates these easy spots for predators to kill animals. There's fewer places to hide, uh, things like that. Wildlife, you can look at wildlife impacts really simply through just the energy budget. So if you think about, you know, what an animal does with its life, it's really devoted uh, to reproduction, maintenance, and growth. So the animal spends all its time just trying to eat food to get energy to do, uh, to reproduce or just maintain itself and to grow. So if you scare an animal, it has to use some of that energy that it's built up for another purpose. So maybe if you scare it too often, maybe it loses its ability to grow or to reproduce. So long term, it can influence uh, the population abundance. So maybe fewer animals are able to reproduce. It can change the distribution. You know, maybe maybe the animals are going to be scared off, so they're not going to inhabit that area anymore, which can change the demographics, the the sex ratios, and then it can change the whole ecosystem. So, I think climatic conditions are are really important when thinking about wildlife because. But I think about during during a drought when there's maybe not in not as much food around if you scare out a bunch of deer that could really have an impact on their life more so than under normal conditions
2: so as humans a lot of times we think of ourselves as sort of separate from the environment but we're really not right so what are some of the social impacts of mountain biking?
1: yeah there there are a lot. Of social impacts. I think everyone can is familiar somewhat with user conflicts, especially when you see these articles about sabotage trails and stuff. But a lot of it's the way that mountain biking is perceived in a lot of popular media. I think you guys had a good article on it at some point, uh, I read it, about the perception problem in mountain biking, showing skids and those kind of things. So what I think is really interesting uh, as far as kind of the social problems that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. It's kind of the way that technological innovation leads to changing trails. And so, it first happened when people just started to ride trails that were meant for hiking. And so, this is you know a new technology, a new impact on the trails. But now you see it a lot when you know somebody comes out with a full suspension six inch full suspension bike on a trail that's you know ideal for just a single speed are like a novice high school rider, they're gonna ride it a little bit differently. They're gonna kinda of push into the corners. You know, if they don't have anything else available to ride, maybe they're gonna go out and create rogue trails or try to build some features.
2: Yeah, that's one of the questions we've asked is, you know, what's what's driving bikes? Is is it is bike are bikes driving the way that we're building trails, or are we building trails for the bikes? I think it is kind of a vicious cycle where or maybe not vicious, maybe it's virtuous. I don't know. <laughs> but they both tend to influence each other. And I remember seeing a, a photo, I think it was on an EMBA calendar a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the months had a photo of this, you know, like flow trail type thing, obviously machine built uh, like at a downhill resort. And this thing looked like a highway, you know, it was like, there's this beautiful scenery on either side of it, this, you know, Alpine meadow. And there's just this like 10 foot wide, you know, jump line going down it. And it just it was very stark, like to see that contrast between, you know, nature and, and what people had built for mountain biking. And, and I don't know if it's a bad thing. And, you know, people have private land, they can do whatever they want. But yeah, it definitely raises some interesting questions.
1: Yeah, I think that progression is really interesting. It's kind of a, a back and forth. Now that you see that with it, just the whole enduro scene, you know, it kind of came from this kind of gap. You have cross-country and downhill, and then those kind of spread apart, and then enduro popped up. I also think it's interesting if you look at the mountain bike course from the Rio Olympics, the entire thing was constructed. You know, it wasn't actually uh, a trail for the landscape, like boulders and logs were all placed in place to provide the features. If you want to do some some homework, it's really fun to watch. the uh, If you Google the 1992 World Cup downhill race and then look at a downhill race from the past few years, I mean, the difference is kind of astounding. And so it's really interesting that I don't think you see this change in the landscape of a sport so much in any other sports, you know, other sports running and swimming, whatever, they might get faster. They might get a little more intense, but with mountain biking, even the, the same competition, world cup downhill the course that it's on is changing drastically you know in the past 30 years so yeah with you know stiffer forks and stiffer axles you're building up the bikes to be stiffer which means that all those forces are being placed back onto the landscape and so it's not a bad thing but you really have to think about it when you're building or maintaining a trail or even buying a bike i think i think people really need to think about what trails they're going to ride when they buy a bike not what's the coolest bike they can get
0: under the umbrella of social impacts. I think, uh, probably falls political considerations, right? There's a lot of politics involved in building and maintaining trails and working with different user groups, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a whole field of research called political ecology where they look at things just like that, not just about hiking uh, there, I don't even. I'm not even aware of anything particularly about bikes, but it's you know a whole field of research about how politics kind of shapes landscapes and things like that. So with mountain bikes, you know, trail access, you can ask like what type of user groups are allowed, even what type of maintenance equipment is allowed, because if you can if you can drive in a mini excavator, you're going to build a much different trail than if you have to do with hand tools. You know, what's the history of the place? And then simply how much funding is it going to get? If you have a ton of money to build a trail, you're going to build a different trail than if you don't have any money. Like how many trailheads there are? How many places to access the trail is an important question. You know, is it it going to be closed when it rains? seasonally closed. Yeah, the political aspects are, definitely play a major role in the amount of impact. And I think that, it's unfortunate that mountain bikers are restricted so much because when you're restricted to only a couple of trails in some places, all the mountain bike impact is going to be really concentrated. And so that makes people think that mountain bikes are, have inherently more, more of an impact than other places. But if mountain bikers have much more access, then the impacts get spread over a much bigger area. So none of the trails see as much impact.
2: So yeah, that's a good segue into my next question. So based on your research and your knowledge about uh, this topic, what is your personal take on mountain bikes in wilderness areas? Uh, is it, are there certain places where bikes are okay or, or should we keep a lot of places bike-free?
1: Yeah, this is usually the first question I get for when I tell other mountain bikers when I'm researching. <laughs> You know, I, I think it kind of depends. I'm again, I'm definitely against the blanket ban, you know, but I don't think there should be a blanket allowance either. I I think it's it's pretty easy to see like all the stuff we talked about before that impacts vary greatly from place to place. So I think it's just really common sense to decide on a place by place, you know, based on the actual location, based on the actual impacts. And based on the science, not the perception. Do
2: you think you can ever get past that, though? I mean, you're just talking about the political part. I mean, it seems like it's wishful thinking to, you know, assume that that's ever going to go away, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know the whole—I don't know how to deal with the whole political aspect, you know. Is is this a mechanized (laughs) transport or not? You know, I don't even think that was in the original Wilderness Act. I think that was added later.
2: yeah. And even but what's crazy is these days, even, you know, science is becoming politicized. And even if you have a study that shows things and has been peer reviewed and is statistically correct, a lot of times even that doesn't matter that, you know, the politics are what ultimately decide what happens.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, but uh, that's why I'm, I'm a scientist, not a politician. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Leave it to the politicians. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, right. I guess that's the best you can do. But I, I do think there are a couple barriers
1: in getting bikes in wilderness areas. And one is just the, you know, the breadth of what's considered mountain biking, you know, downhill or enduro, bike, bike, uh, bike packing, even people that don't even consider themselves cyclists, you know, just the family wanting to go ride on the weekend, you know, that's all mountain biking. So I think in, for access to wilderness, we really need to define... You know, what we want that access to be like the flow trails you're mentioning earlier. That's like a highway. I don't think anyone wants that through wilderness areas, but a little simple single track trail where people can just go ride through. I mean, that's totally fine with me. So I think most of the research that I've seen and my stuff, it all indicates that it's just overall usage rates are going to be the biggest impact or the biggest indicator of impact, irregardless of what type of user. So I think a permit system would be a great uh, compromise, you know, just to control the number of people going into the area so they know who's going and when they're going.
2: Yeah, that brings up an interesting question in my mind, too, about sessioning. You know, you talked about how really the number of passes through an area uh, tend to contribute the most to the impact. So, yeah, it seems like if there are certain features along a trail where people are going to go back and ride them over and over again, it seems like those are going to get blown out before others. So yeah, maybe there are rules about how many passes you can take through a certain area. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I guess some of that comes also from the challenge that the trail presents, you know, if there's only, if it's an easy trail with one or two features, people might want to, uh, might want to session those features. And so maybe, maybe someone needs to find a place to build a trail that has kind of continuous challenging features to kind of, mitigate people wanting to come and do the same thing over and over.
2: Yeah. Like how you think that's a good solution. Add more awesome parts instead of getting rid of the good ones. That's perfect.
0: What what do we need to learn more about mountain biking's impact? Is it, is it funding? Is it more research? What can mountain bikers do?
1: Yeah, definitely more funding, more research. Um, it's kind of a hard thing to do because it's so various and there's so many trails out there and there aren't a lot of people studying it there's a good handful of people doing this type of research but i think like citizen science can go a long way so having local trail organizations adopt like simple processes so that they can have repeated measures over time like simply taking a photograph in the same place you know every month or every year uh, especially if you alter the place you know if you have a bad erosion problem, take some pictures. And then when you go in and, and you do some management action to kind of fix the erosion, take pictures and take pictures of how it responds. Or measuring trail cross sections to see how much erosion is happening. All those types of things are really simple ways that local trail organizations can, you know, use science to their advantage. So somewhere down the road, if there's another problem, they have evidence that, you know, this works or this doesn't work. They, Soil data maps are available online from the USDA. They have surveys by county. So, you know, anyone can go and download those maps and look at what types of soil they have and maybe figure out how to root a trail or reroute a trail. Places like EMBA can really do a lot to uh, teach people more about impacts and the way to collect and analyze data uh, instead of just, you know, teaching people how to build berms, which is great. but. Most people out there don't need to know how to build trails, especially when rogue trails are a problem. You know, they need to learn what the problems are before you can learn how to fix them. So I would really like to see EMBA and places like that uh, put a little more attention on the research aspect of it. It's one of my big goals after I finish uh, my Ph.D. and hopefully go on to uh, a job somewhere else. Is to kind of partner up with high school teams or college teams or any group of people uh, to collect data. And so, if you can get get a bunch of people out there, a bunch of trail users, and use those can be volunteer hours, just like uh, trail maintenance. But just have them measure the trail width, and measure the depth. It's super easy to do. But if you have a bunch of people doing it in a bunch of places over time. Then you can really really build up a good uh, a good data set and you 're also you know teaching basic science to people, so I think that kind of citizen science approach would go a really long way to improving trails and also just giving legitimacy to uh, you know or more legitimacy to some local trail groups
2: yeah it seems wise too because of the perception of mountain bikers among other user groups too you know the perception among others seems to be that mountain bikers don't care about the environment, but you know, all of us know that that's not the case at all, you know. that's why most of us like mountain biking, so we don't ride on the road, you know. We love love the environment, love nature and so yeah, that's seems like a great way to show that we really do care.
1: Yeah, yeah, if you, you know, to non-bikers seeing uh seeing people out there, you know, taking soil samples or measuring the trail is going to be much different than if they're kind of digging up extra berms and stuff which again is totally cool but um yeah it's it's a perception thing awesome anything else no i think i think that's it
0: great well ross we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on this episode of the single tracks podcast
1: yeah I, i really appreciate you having me on it's uh i think it's great to kind of spread the word about these environmental impacts get people to think about it
0: absolutely If you'd like to learn more about mountain bikes impacts on the environment, go to singletracks.com and search for articles with that topic, and I'm sure you'll pull up a bunch of results. That's all we got for this week. We'll catch you next time on the Singletracks podcast.